Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everybody. Welcome. I'm very excited to be studying Parshat Re'eh this week with a very special guest. He's also the Rav of the community and does a lot of other things, but for us, what is so important, he's a member of the Pardes North American faculty. I am referring to a return guest, return participant, return Chavruta, Rabbi Brent Spodek. Welcome, Brent. Hello, three. It is great to see you again. It is great to learn some Torah with you again. Hello, hello. And again, we are spanning the ocean, folks. Brent is in North America. I'm in Israel, but we're going to meet somewhere in the middle and talk some Torah. So here we are, Brent. We're in the really in the middle of the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. Moshe is trying to educate, motivate really instruct the people, this is the final step before they come into the land of Israel. What would you say, looking at this Parsha, if there is one or two central messages that he is hitting on as an educator and as a leader to help the people achieve their goal? Well, I think part of what he's doing is something that we all have to do in all of our relationships, whether they're one-on-one or communal, which is have some understanding of what are boundaries that are absolute red lines that cannot be crossed, and what are things that are boundaries and expectations, but we also understand that we're dealing with human beings, and inevitably things will be falling short. There are some things in this parsha that Merkel lays out are beyond the pale, and you can't have any relationship with them because they're really fundamentally problematic. And there are other things that you shouldn't do, and when you mess up, we can talk about how we're going to deal with it, but it doesn't necessitate a harshness because you can't have a society built on harshness. Okay, so some behaviors are saying, in this case, I'm assuming you're referencing idolatry here, right? There's some behaviors that break the whole system, and therefore there's no way for the system to keep including or holding on to that person because what they're doing really threatens really the very fabric, the existence of the whole framework. Moshe knows, and boy does he know, that the people individuals and collectively are going to fail, are going to err, are going to miss the mark. And you're saying he's preparing them for that and how to respond to that in a way that doesn't break the whole system. Absolutely. Right. Moshe and Kutchabrika are trying to build a society oriented towards God, oriented towards holiness, right? Which is why the focus on idolatry is so strong. If you don't have that at the center as the overarching principle of what you're trying to do, live a life aligned with the Holy One, then this project isn't going to work at all. But if you understand, as Moshe, I think, is very clearly trying to communicate, that what we're trying to do is build a society oriented towards divinity, oriented towards the Holy One. That's our goal. That's our focus point. And then within that, we're going to fall short because we're human. We're fallible. We're not God. We're not perfect. What do we do then when we fall short? We can't respond with the harshness we respond to idolatry with, because you can't have a society of human beings that way. Everyone would have to be put into harem on day one, at best. So let's focus in on the psukim that I feel that you really astutely honed in on that seem to really talk about Moshe and God's awareness that people have free choice and that there is no guaranteed outcome here of success, that we are given tremendous responsibility for the ultimate success of this project. Absolutely. So in many ways, the scene is set right at the beginning of our parker, the very first line, right? 
look, I'm putting before you blessings and curses. And it goes on, and the language here is very specific. So I'm putting before you a blessing and a curse. The blessing when, share when you hearken to the commandments of the Holy One. And then in the next clause, right? And the curse is if. So there's a conditional in the messing up, but a certainty in the listening. Are you saying Moshe is optimistic? Is that what you're telling me here? Oh my goodness. Yeah, I think Moshe is optimistic, but also generous. What he's saying here, actually I'm borrowing this language from the Sfat Emet, or the many Hasidic commentators pick up on this, right? He goes on after noting that language and says, right? The goodness of B'nai Yisrael is inherent, is in them, is who they are. And the mistakes, the sins, are things that happen. He's being optimistic, but I'd say more than being optimistic, he's being generous in understanding that these people, the Israelite people, the Jewish people, are fundamentally good people, right? They are fundamentally good people, and they make mistakes. And we have to deal with those mistakes. We have to rectify those mistakes. But that doesn't change the essential understanding of who they are and how Moshe hopes to relate to them. So let's come back to this point, because this issue of how the Torah sees humanity, how the Torah sees us, you know, I guess I've been conditioned to think that we're born neutral and that we can go in either direction. We have the free choice, but it's sort of this Yetzirah Tov, Yetzirah, good and evil inclinations. It's like a fair fight. And in a way, I hear you saying that there's actually this other view that you're sharing that says, no, we are, in fact, in our essence, good. And the quote-unquote bad things or the failures or the mistakes that come about do not reflect our essence. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that and how you understand that. I think part of what's going on here is there's a challenge in here. Because when we feel like we're bad, right, in some way, some way we're inherently bad, we can collapse, right? If I'm just inherently bad, that's it. That's just who I am. There's nothing I can do about it, right? It's like saying I'm, you know, I'm five foot eight. Nothing I can do about that. That's what I am, right? And I just have to accept that. But in saying that, no, we're fundamentally good, but we're called to live up to that. We're called to expand into that is an invitation, but also a challenge. I don't think it's so much that it's a fair fight. We could be entirely good or we could be entirely evil. That we're called to bring the best of ourselves on this. I'm thinking here of when the Holy One introduces the divine self to the Israelites right at the Song of the Sea. The Holy One introduces himself as Ani Adonai Rofecha. I am God, your healer. Which is to say, there are things that trouble you. There are things that ail you. There are things that make you ill, both physically and mentally and psychologically and spiritually. And I can heal you. Come walk in my ways and be healed of what ails you because you are inherently healthy. You are inherently good. And I can help you realize that. I can help you actualize that. So before I ask you the hard question about all the mistakes and failures that pop up, how does this translate for you into how you relate to yourself and relate to other people, this idea that we are inherently good? 
I'm assuming in life, you, like others, are confronted by people that it's very hard to see that goodness. I think sometimes we find it very hard to see that goodness in ourselves, right? I sometimes see myself as just a person who lacks motivation and initiative and energy, and I'll get very down on myself in that way. What does one do with that when they sort of have this, on the one hand, hopeful belief that they are essentially good, but their experience of themselves and others that doesn't seem to confirm that? Yeah. So a few thoughts here. First, I'm reminded of a teaching of Rebbe Nachman, who says there's a nikkada tova, there's a point of goodness in every person. And the job of a religious person, the job of someone who seeks to be an Evet Hashem, is to find that good point in everyone. And he goes on to say, some people make this very easy and some people make this very difficult. That in some ways, that is what I am called to do as somebody who aspires to be a religious person, is to seek that exactly in the moments when it's difficult. So I spend a lot of time canoeing. I'm blessed to live by the Adirondacks and I I go out canoeing a lot. And if you spent any time in a canoe, it is very, very difficult to actually move it in a straight line. It's almost impossible to do. You talk, right? You identify where you're trying to go. I'm trying to navigate to that rock, that tree, that point. And you keep it in your sights, right? You keep looking at where you're trying to go But as you paddle, as you actually move through the world, you go a little bit too far to the west or a little bit too far to the east. That's okay. You keep your eyes on what you're focused on and you course correct. So in terms of how I try to see myself and how I try to see other people is a little bit in that way. Who I want to be, who I see myself is, is that tree off in the horizon. That's what I'm going for. The fully realized, the fully actualized Brent who's fully in harmony with, with the Holy One and all of the beings in my life. And inevitably, I don't sail straight to that goal. I can't. Every given day, I go a little to the left, a little to the right. I notice I'm drifting a little bit this way, so I paddle on the other side and try to reorient, knowing that I'll never get back to a perfectly straight line. I'm just going to keep tacking left and right, east and west, as I move towards my goal. So it's interesting what you're saying, because I feel like the Svatimet even took you a step further. You already are that Brent at the tree line that you're headed for. And in fact, these course corrections or these moving off are just coincidental or they happen, but you're really already there in some way. Your essence is already good. And it's not about becoming this other Brent, but the good Brent, or you would say our best self is already present. It's already there. We just have to see it. We just have to reach it, right? It's like anytime you set a goal of any sort, right? It's valuable to visualize achieving that goal as you're doing it, right? When I go out running, from the second step I take running, I'm already seeing myself crossing the finish line. Now, I can't simply say, ah, I can see it in my mind. There I am finishing the New York Marathon. I can visualize it. I'm going to go home and watch TV, right? But having that vision in my mind, and I think that's what the spot Emmet is giving us, yeah, you really are that person. You really are that generous. You really are that patient. You really are that open-hearted. Now you just have to run the race to get there, but you're already there. So I have two questions to follow up, one more difficult than the other. I guess the first one is, how do you feel this perspective would impact your relationship with other people? But then beyond that, with this perspective comes a tremendous amount of responsibility that our failures are not baked into our DNA. And people often say this, well, I'm just hot-tempered. 
That's just who I am. Or, you know what? I'm stingy. I'm not a very giving person. I wasn't born that way. And the psukim, the verses that you referenced, on the one hand, empowers us, but on the other hand, seems to also take away a lot of the excuses, those comfortable things that we can say to ourselves that I'm not really bad. I was just born this way. This is my DNA. This is how I am. And that's how God made me. God made me that way. So I realize I gave you a lot. We can start with how you relate to other people, but they are connected because, and I realize I'm going on a rant here, that if we really are all both empowered and responsible, then on the one hand, your approach can lead me to be more positive and optimistic when I'm confronted with a person who is difficult. There's goodness there. But I know I'm also going to have a lot more expectation of others precisely because that goodness is there. I think that sense of this is just who I am, this is just the way God made me, is in some way a cop-out because it lets you off the hook. So I'll take one example. It is really true that at this point in my life, there is nothing I can do that would make me a different height than I am. That is, I'm pretty sure, an immutable fact. If anything, I'll get shorter as I get older, right? That's the exception, not the rule. To say I just am stingy or I just am hot-tempered, it means at a certain level you don't believe in tshuva, right? You don't believe you can grow. You don't believe you can change. You don't believe you can develop. It also means you don't believe you have any responsibility in your relationships. Because if I'm in a conflict with someone and I say, that's just who I am, I'm essentially saying, you have to deal with it. You have to accommodate who I essentially am, which is a very immature and irresponsible way to be in a relationship, certainly among peers, right? Certainly among friends, partners. Parent-child relationships, I think, are a little bit different right? Because you are trying to help your children grow and develop and shape the way they grow and develop. But simply to say that's who I am is a cop-out. It's not taking any responsibility. And what about in your approach to others? In other words, I guess I'm trying to say is because of your belief in the goodness of others, does their failure to demonstrate that goodness sometimes frustrate you more, get you more disappointed, get you more, I don't know, sad? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd say sometimes in some relationships, I find myself saying, I want to keep this relationship in a certain framework, right? I have different degrees, I have different types of relationships, we all do. And there are some relationships where I say, okay, I'm very comfortable within this framework, but not further, right? Take a simple example. I don't ultimately really care how emotionally mature my car mechanic is. He fixes my car, I pay him money. That relationship is very contained. In other relationships, I might say, you know what, this is not a relationship I want to invest my time or energy into. This is not where I want to put my life force. In other relationships, intimate relationships, family, friends, people I'm close with, it can be difficult and frustrating. Most of all on myself, where I feel like I push myself to be the self I like to think of myself as, if that makes any sense. I like to see myself crossing the finish line But I know the only way I actually do that is if I practice running. I like to see myself as kind and patient and loving and positive. But the only way I do that is if I push myself to make those choices every day. And often I fall short, but that's the goal. That's what I'm pushing myself towards. When Moshe tells this to the people, 
and he's both empowering them and you said really giving them a lot of responsibility. I guess I'm curious in your mind, how important is it to have that other person in our lives who sees us as good, who identifies our goodness for us? Maybe you could speak about that. Yeah, I think the role of other people in this is huge. I'm not any sort of expert on neurobiology and anything like that. But from what I understand, we're pack animals, right? There's a reason we think of solitary confinement as a form of torture. We're built to regulate our nervous systems in relationship, in dialogue with other people. And often other people can help us bring out the best of who we are, right? In this dynamic of noticing where there's anger, I'm thinking of the story in Brachot where Rabbi Mayer is being hassled by these folks in his neighborhood, right? By these young hooligans. And he prays for them to die. And his wife, Gloria, right? Being that other person in relationship with him, says to him, you must be misunderstanding a verse because surely you wouldn't be praying for these people to die. What you're actually praying for is their sin to die and that they can live without that sin. And Rabbi Mayer's like, right, right, of course, that's what I was doing. And that is what he prays for, and that is what happens. What's interesting to me in that story is Rafi, in explaining it, refers to those people, refers to the ones who are giving him a hard time as fruitsin, a word that means wild beasts. But in terms of what we were talking about before, wild beasts can't really change, right? Like a lion can't do shuva. But people can, and these thugs did. Originally, Rabbi Meir was responding with anger, with violence. Understandable, right? But his wife, Breuer, was helping him be a better version of himself, saying, you don't really want to be that guy. You don't want to be the guy praying for violence against the people who did violence to you. You want to be better than that. And not only do you want to be better, it'll make the situation better. And she was right. He took responsibility for the little thing he was doing, and it changed everything. Yeah, I wonder if perhaps by the very fact of him praying for those guys changed the way he interacted with them, and that kind of catalyzed a process. Once he's praying for them, he's not angry with them. He's hoping for something to change and be better, right? To pray for somebody is to care about them in a very fundamental way, that maybe that actual interaction or that shift is what made it possible for them to also shift. Yeah, and I think prayer is a huge part of that. Right. For me, one of the most important parts of prayer, right, stepping into prayer three times a day, three times a day, right? Often I've not done anything else in the morning, right? If I take a real look, it's, I haven't been up long enough to do anything terribly bad. But that is the prayer I offer. In some ways, I think of that as that praying for myself is a little bit of that course correction. Three times a day, I can check in and say, okay, where have I misstepped since I last stepped into prayer? Where do I need to course correct? That act of praying for others or for ourselves, I think is a really, really powerful way of orienting ourselves towards who we want to be, right? It's when you're in a canoe, it's very easy to look down at your paddle. You sort of have to. But every once in a while, you have to look up and say, Wait, where's that tree I'm navigating towards? Prayer is that moment of looking up and saying, where's that self I'm navigating towards? Where's that Brent I'm hoping to be? 
oh, it's over there. Let me course correct. So, you know, I don't know why my questions are coming in pairs, so I'll try to keep them one at a time. Of course, the rabbis warn against the dangers of pairs and tractate psachim, so I'll try to avoid pairs. The first thing I want to note is the use of the plural here. And I'm pointing that out only because I think a lot of us get very focused on, I'm doing my self-work I'm doing my own piece of personal growth. There is a sense that a lot of the ways we improve and grow is very much a process I take on for myself. And Moshe is speaking to the people. He's talking about cultivating a society or a culture where I think on some level we're making this choice together. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or ideas of how we build that kind of society or culture where I'm just not about me only doing my own work, but we're all sort of doing this together. Yeah, I'm thinking of two things, one very small and one somewhat larger. The small one is in my small town up here in the Hudson Valley, there's an intersection in between a public park, a big public park and a very popular ice cream stand. And there's a busy road that runs in between it. And, uh, you know, there's been some local chatter about whether or not we need to put a traffic light or a stop sign somewhere right over there. There are kids going back and forth all the time between the ice cream stand and the park. And, you know, at some local meeting, one individual said, look, the kids have to take responsibility and both ways before they cross the street. And somebody else responded saying, you're completely right. The kids need to take responsibility and look both ways before they cross the street. And... Being a spacey 12-year-old or 7-year-old shouldn't be a capital crime. The kids should look both ways before they cross the street. And sometimes they're not going to. And we don't want the penalty for that to be death, right? Which is to say, we're not disagreeing about what's the right thing to do. We're disagreeing about what the penalty should be. And what the people who are arguing for the traffic light are saying is, look, yeah, they should look both ways. And sometimes they don't. And we don't want our kids to die because they forget to look both ways. Which is to say, we accept a certain degree of imperfection in our relationships, in our society, in our community, right? This point gets made towards the end of the Parsha, right, on a larger scale, when we get the instruction about the remission of debts. Every seventh year, the debts are forgiven, right? This is Jubilee and leading to Yobel, and the sense that we don't let these debts last forever. I think part of that is understanding somebody goes into debt, something's gone wrong. Maybe it was bad luck, maybe it was poor planning, maybe irresponsible farming practices. There could be any number of reasons why somebody goes into debt. And we're going to try and build a society that has people take responsibility for their mistakes, but also has some grace, has some forgiveness built into it. And I think when we think about how we build our societies, whether that's the small society of a synagogue, a yeshiva, a small community, or even a large society, right, of a city, a state, a country, one of the questions I think we need to ask is not just what are we aspiring to, but how do we deal with mistakes? How do we bring a level of forgiveness, of understanding human fallibility into the society? That's, I think, part of what the business about remitting debts is about. And I think that's part of what the partial opens with. You're fundamentally good. And when you mess up, here's what we're going to do. So that sort of covers what to do when. I now want to push in the direction of how to get that course correction or how to get that course on track, right? The choice that Moshe tells them, the secret of choosing blessing is to choose Torah and mitzvot, which I'm understanding in a broader way is telling us that Torah and mitzvot are not only about serving God. 
whatever that might mean. They're not only about connecting to God, but they are somehow designed also to help us make better choices, to build the goodness within us. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. Even in your own life, how did Torah and Mitzvot help you build that better self that you are striving for and the better community that we're striving for, the better Jewish people that we're striving for? Yeah, I think the Rambam would agree very strongly with what you just said, that part of what the mitzvot are there for, a huge part of what they're there for, is to educate us and shape us. And that, you know, on the one level, yeah, you can be in the Vavah Roshita Torah, you can be a jerk with the permission of the Torah, but that's not what it's there for. It's there to help us grow and help us develop. We serve God in being the best of the Hashem we can be, the best servants of God we can be. So one of the main ways is actually what I mentioned before, checking in three times a day and saying, okay, how am I doing? Where did I misstep, right? And when I step into prayer in that way, just simply rewinding. I mean, the nice thing about praying so frequently is that you don't have to remember that much, right? You get back to Yom Kippur and suddenly have to remember a whole year. But if all you have to remember is, okay, what did I do in the last six hours, in the last eight hours? I can look back and be like, oh, yeah, there was that moment of harshness there. There was a moment there. And often, right, and this is also from the Rambam, I step into prayer, right, which is say I step out of my day-to-day life. In my day-to-day life, I'm talking to people, I'm writing emails, I'm doing things. Like that. Then at a certain moment, I step out of that. I put all that step aside, and I step into a moment of prayer, a moment of reflection. I often, in that space, come back and say, okay, I'm a little disappointed in myself. I'm a little frustrated in myself. The real work of the prayer, I think, is actually not standing there with my feet together for the Shemona Ephraim. The real work of the prayer happens at the end of services, when I step back into regular life of phone calls and emails and all of that, and call up the colleague, the wife, the kid, and be like, hey, I just wanted to circle back to that conversation we had before. I think I was a little impatient. I think I was a little abrupt, and I'm sorry for that. I wonder if we can revisit that thing we were talking about. It's the work of the mitzvot, of doing tefillah, is essential. That is actually not everything. It sets you up for actually stepping back into the world in a better way, in a holier way. So I think what I hear you saying, which I think is a very important point, we have to be out of the mindset of viewing religious actions as like a checklist. You know, I did this, I did that, I covered this, and now I can get on with the other parts of my day. But the religious life, a life of Torah and Mitzvot, is meant to cultivate a certain type of personality, a certain type of awareness, a certain sensitivity, what we would call Midot, right, to build my character. And maybe in a way, I think it was Rav Steinsaltz who said, if you want to check in on your spiritual growth, see how you're doing with other people. If you're treating other people better, that's a really positive sign that your relationship with God and Torah and Mitzvot is really improving. If you are, you know, buying extra kosher stuff and you're, you know, praying for an extra hour, but you're still losing your temper and still treating other people poorly, your practice is not achieving what you want it to achieve. And I think that that's a very powerful point that I think we sometimes get lost or divided between those folks who want to only talk about Midot and those folks who only want to talk about the details of the practice. And you're saying, actually, they really form, at least for you in your life, I imagine you're teaching that others, they form an integrated piece. So I didn't grow up in a particularly observant or plugged-in Jewish environment. And years ago, I mean, at this point, it's close to 25 years ago, 
I'd spent some time in Israel. I'd studied at Pardes. And I was back in New York, you know, was preparing for Yom Kippur. And, you know, I was planning on going to a minion that was very serious. We were going to dive in everything. We were going to, we were going to make sure we did everything. And the services were going to be long and they were going to be all in Hebrew and it was going to be very serious. And I was talking to my mother with whom I don't always have the easiest relationship. And this was 25 years ago. So we were actually talking on the phone and my wife was hearing my side of the conversation. Which I was saying, no, I don't think you're going to like it. No, I don't think it's the right thing for you. No, I don't think you should come. And my wife, uh, perhaps channeling Brewer there, sort of raises her hand. I'm like, All right, Mom, hold on a second. My wife's saying something. And so I cover the phone. And my wife, Allison, says to me, she was like, I just want to make sure I understand what's going on here. Your mother is wanting to spend Yom Kippur with you. And you're saying you can't spend Yom Kippur with her because you have to be in prayer reflecting on the ways in which you've fallen short in the past year. And so you're pushing your mother away as she's trying to connect with you. May I humbly suggest you're missing the point of the entire exercise. And it was this moment like a punch in the gut where it's like, right, I am missing the point of the entire exercise. I have learned the liturgy. I can stand there. I can dive in. I can read the Hebrew. I can chant. But that's not actually the point. That is the tool. That is the exercise. The point is, how do I show up for my mother? How do I show up for the people in my life? And I absolutely believe that mitzvot, that halakha, that the framework of Judaism can help us become better people, is an incredibly powerful tool, as the Rambam teaches, to help us become better people. But simply doing it doesn't make us be better people. It sets us up to be better people. Wow. It's, first of all, it sounds like I need to have Allison on the podcast. I think I have a lot to learn from her as well. Much better than me. Well, I didn't say that at all. We could have you as a couple. That'd be pretty interesting. Okay, wonderful. I feel like, as per usual, you've given us a lot of work to do. We have to be positive. We have to trust in the goodness in ourselves and others. We have to create a community that makes space for people to fail and to fall short without you know, attacking them or throwing them away or confirming their worst view of themselves. And we have to figure out, maybe the biggest challenge, how our study of Torah and our performance of Torah have to build this goodness and strengthen this goodness and bring us closer to that goal and to make the right choice, as Moshe is challenging us to do. Did I get it? What do you think? I think absolutely. I think that it is, you know, two ways that I think a lot of times discourse about Judaism can sort of go off the rails is one direction, perhaps a little bit more the Yeshua Leibovitz direction. The only point is to do the mitzvot. There's no other outcome, right? It's just about doing the mitzvot. I did it. I checked it. Yotze. I've fulfilled my obligation. That's all I have to do. And the other saying that the mitzvot, that the framework of Judaism doesn't actually do anything to help us become better, to become Ovde Hashem. And I think that in many ways, the fundamental Torah I learned from Pardes a long time ago and try to teach now right, is that all of the Torah can help us be better people, be better people in relationship with each other. I would take it even further to say, you know, if I'm inviting other people into the conversation here, I want to invite Emmanuel Levinas in here. There might be some day where the skies open up and the voice of God calls out to me and says, Fred, this is the only one. I'm talking to you. That'd be great. That'd be amazing. I also think there's a real sense and this is Levinas, that the divine shows up in the face of other people. 
And that if I actually respond to the face of everyone I meet, my wife, my kids, my car mechanic, and say, this is the face of God, right? This is the revelation of the divine and respond to them in the way I like to think I would respond if the Holy One literally called out to me in the heavens, a different sort of life than I might otherwise. I think that's the invitation of Torah. It's the inverse of saying, oh, I'm so bad, I'm just stingy, this is just who I am as a cop-out. Thinking I'll respond to God when God calls to me out of the heavens is also a cop-out. In a very real sense, I think God is calling out to us in every interaction we have with another human being. And God's face is shining to us on, you know, the schmuck on the bus across the way from us who's clipping his toenails on the bus. Oh, that's a terrible image. Exactly. Got to find the goodness in him, too. Yeah, because that's the face of God. Wow. Okay. I have to find and do a podcast with somebody who's going to say, uh, Svi, don't worry about it. Forget it. You're good enough as you are. Just take it easy. Sit on the couch. Just need to rest. Instead, I keep on saying with all you Pardes people, like, no, you got to work harder. You've got tremendous potential, but you've got to use it. You've got a mission. Torah is calling for you. God expects this of you, and God wants this of you. And all I can say is it's very inspiring, but it's a lot of work. But first and foremost, it's very inspiring. I want to thank you very, very much for joining me and for doing this podcast with us. And I think you've given us a lot of things to think about as we're hearing this Parsha. We have to really think about that call of the ways in which we can grow and improve and make space for others who fail and find the goodness in ourselves. And I'm very appreciative. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, Steve, for having me. As always, it is a pleasure and an honor to learn with you. And I look forward to more next time. Fantastic. So on that note, folks, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful Shabbat, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.